Well, good morning and um, welcome to Outward Church. Uh, it's good that you're here with us today. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm on the uh, pastoral team here. Uh, Pastor Matt has been out of town for a few weeks. If you're new here, if you're just visiting, if you moved to town and you're checking us out or whatever, um, I'm not normally the guy who's up here. Uh, Matt is out of town for a number of weeks uh, getting some, some uh, rest and some refreshing time with his family. They're on vacation. He'll be back here in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, uh, as a church, we've been going through the book of Mark together and looking at one of these gospels that tells us the story about Jesus. And so we're in this, in this book for about 12 weeks this summer. We're kind of blowing through it pretty quick, uh, kind of jumping over some spots, but we're choosing specifically to highlight um, some, some things that we want to draw out of the book. And we've called the series The Greatest of All Time, because as we look around uh, in culture, we see that there are things that are constantly vying for that title of being the greatest, whatever it may be. We even put a website together, uh, kind of having some fun with this idea, trying to get some, some uh, polls out there, get some things uh, voted on just to kind of get us talking and, and get some discussion going. But, but when we look at Mark's gospel in particular, we see Jesus being portrayed as the ultimate greatest in his authority as king and then in his servanthood as how he comes to, to sacrifice himself for us. And so he is, he is this servant king. He is this, this sacrificial hero, in a sense, uh, that we see in Mark's gospel. And so that's where we're kind of coming from. That's the lens we're looking at Mark through. And so today, we're going to be in chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, there's a few on the table back there, or it'll be on the screens um, to my right and left. But... Um, just to catch you up a little bit where we've been, we started the series and we looked at the first chapter in Mark, and, uh, and we see right from the very start in verse 1, Mark explains that this book is about Jesus. He is the central figure. He's the hero of the story, and it's a gospel, which means it's the good news about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what that means for us. And so that, that sets the tone for the entire book. And right in those opening verses of Mark, we saw Jesus going to John the Baptist and asking John to baptize him. And, and what Matt explained to us in that was that as Jesus was being baptized by John and having that done to him, what he's doing is he's, he's, he says he's fulfilling all righteousness, but what that means is he is giving us a picture of, of what happens when we come to Jesus, when we are baptized. And it's this understanding that our cleansing from sin is not something that we can do ourselves. It's something that has to be done for us. And we see that picture when John baptizes Jesus, and he goes under the water, and, and he comes up, and the dove comes down, and, and that kind of then sets us off um, on, on a trajectory through Mark, looking at what Jesus came to do. And so then uh, from there, Tim took us uh, into the next couple chapters. Uh, Tim Porter, he's one of, one of the guys here, our elders, and uh, he took us through uh, the next couple chapters looking at how Jesus was the greatest rule breaker of all time. And we call Jesus the greatest rule breaker because, not because he broke God's laws. In fact, Jesus came and said that he was the fulfillment of the law. But Jesus came and he, he kind of upset the, the religious establishment, people who were confident in their self-righteousness, Jesus came, and he kind of butted heads with them, and we saw uh, Jesus in that. And then Brian took us into chapter 4, and we saw how Jesus was the greatest storyteller, is the greatest storyteller. And, and we looked at one of the parables of Jesus, and how Jesus used story as a way to connect with his audience, and how those parables still connect with us today. And then, ultimately, Jesus himself 
is the greatest story, and he invites us into that story with him. And then last week, uh, Tim took us into uh, chapter 5 when we see Jesus calming the storm in the boat with his disciples. And, and uh, he pointed out that as we look to Jesus, he inspires worship in us by showing us that he is more powerful than the things we fear the most. And so we fear these things, and Jesus comes, and he's more powerful than that. And so when we place a healthy, correctly placed fear on Jesus, that leads us to worship. And, and so Jesus is our greatest fear, but in, in a rightly understood way, that points us to worship. And so today, we come to Mark 6, like I said, and we're going to look at one of Jesus' miracles. We haven't really focused so much on some of the miracles that Jesus did, uh, which we see a number of in the book of Mark. And, and we believe that Jesus, right up front, we believe that Jesus is God. We believe that he is divine, that he shares all, all attributes with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And because of that, he has power and authority, as Mark displays in his gospel, to do things that cannot be explained um, by, by human, human standards or human explanations. And so as we look at this miracle, we've got to keep in mind there are three things um, that are happening when we see a miracle take place in the New Testament. First, what a miracle does is it authenticates who Jesus is. Basically, what it does is it backs up his claims to have authority as God. And so when Jesus does these miracles, he's showing us, I am who I am say I am, because I am doing this and no human could accomplish this. And so it authenticates his claim as God. Secondly, it shows us part of God's character. These, these miracles kind of give us a glimpse into God's nature and his heart. When Jesus heals the sick, when he, when he raises the dead, when he, when he does these different things, we, we catch a glimpse of some of the various attributes of God. And so that's kind of the second thing that takes place when we see a miracle. And then the third thing that we understand when we read a miracle in the Bible, why is this in our Bible, is that it ultimately points to an element of why Jesus came in the first place, what he had actually come to do and to accomplish. And so these miracles illustrate that. So we're going to be in Mark 6, and the miracle we're going to look at today is perhaps the greatest miracle of all time. And, and we're not calling the sermon the greatest miracle of all time. We'll get to that in a minute. But, um, but this miracle is probably one that you have heard. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're new to faith or if you're far from Jesus, didn't grow up in church, there's a chance that you've probably heard of this miracle at some point. What we're looking at today is the miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. It's a fantastic story, and it's unique because of all four Gospels, this story, this miracle, is the only one, besides Jesus raising from the dead, his resurrection, that we see in all four Gospels. It's an important miracle. It's actually found in all of the Gospels. It was that important that they wanted to highlight it for us. So let's just go ahead and start reading. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. We're going to stop there. I'm going to kind of stop at various points as we go through this. Uh, let's, let's figure out some context here for a second. The disciples returned to Jesus. Where had they come from? Well, earlier in the chapter, uh, I won't read it to you right now, but we see that Jesus had just sent out his 12 disciples. Now, there were hundreds of people that kind of followed Jesus. He had kind of achieved this rock star status at this point in his ministry, at this point in the book. And so there were a lot of people that followed Jesus, that listened to his teaching, but there were 12 
that he called to himself uh, uniquely to be his disciples. And so one of the, one of the ways that uh, this plays itself out is earlier in chapter 6, we see Jesus calling the 12 to him, and he entrusts them with authority. And he sends them out and says, go, do miracles, cast out demons, heal people in my name, and I'm giving you the power to do this. Now, there's something significant that you have to notice when Jesus does this. If you look in verse 8, it says, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And, and he goes on and explains more. But basically what we see there is Jesus is he's kind of sending the disciples out on a trial mission a little bit. This is, in a lot of ways, the first missionary journey. And it, it kind of illustrates for us what happens when we follow Jesus. He calls us to himself, and then he sends us. Right? We come, we find life in him, and then he calls us to go share that with the world. And so he does that with the disciples here. But notice how he told them not to take anything with them. He's telling them, you have to rely on me. And so it's kind of a trust exercise, what Jesus is doing, and as he's spreading his, his name, his authority, the message of the kingdom of God um, throughout Israel. So the disciples have just returned from this, and they have to be on a spiritual high because they have seen God do some amazing things. They have healed people. They have cast demons out of people. And they've come back to Jesus now, and they've got to be exhausted. And so he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest. Let's pick it up in verse 32. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Again, Jesus had kind of achieved rock star status here, right? He can't escape the crowd, even when he was trying to get away and rest. Now, now there, there are times in our lives where we, I think it's good for us to try to do this, what Jesus was doing, the disciples, to get away to a place kind of out of the ordinary, a desolate area. I love uh, going camping. When, when, I, when I was uh, about 10 years old, I think I went camping for the first time. And my family, we ended up going camping a lot, and, and those are some of my best memories. And then when I married Michelle, we, we, I introduced camping to her. Uh, we go and we take our kids, and, and uh, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do because you get out away from norm the normal, right? And you, you go and you, you go up into the mountains or you go by a river or a lake or something and it's, you, you put your phone in airplane mode for a couple days, right? You just kind of disconnect and you're able to just relax. And, and I think it's in those moments where, where a lot of times Jesus can do some uh, good work with us because we kind of distance ourselves from the distractions or the busyness, but we just kind of get into this desolate place and, and we kind of open ourselves to what he has to say for us. Now, we... Uh, we went camping just this last weekend, and um, we, we were up in Washington. We met some, some uh, old friends up there for a couple days, and we, we uh, drove about six hours to go camping, and, and then, of course, you set up, and that takes a lot of time, and so then you have your day of camping, and then the next day is tearing down and driving home. And so it's essentially like one day of camping. But, um, so we were, we were about a day and a half into the experience, and I love camping. I love the, the rest, the relaxation that comes from camping, and, and I found myself a little bit agitated. I was like, why, why am I not enjoying this experience as much as I, as I should? And it occurred to me, I'm camping with my six-year-old and my four-year-old and my one-year-old, 
And I have a wife who's six months pregnant. So it occurred to me, there is not going to actually be any rest in this experience for me. This is going to be work. And, and as much as we desire that rest, sometimes it just doesn't come. And in this experience, I can only imagine that that was kind of what happened with Jesus and his disciples. They're going away to a desolate place, and they see the crowd coming after them. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion on them. It's part of his nature. It's part of who God is. When he sees people who need him, who need to hear from them, he comes to them. And so, uh, picking it up in verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus is testing his disciples. It doesn't tell us that right there in Mark's gospel, but it tells us in one of the other gospel accounts of this story that Jesus knew what he was doing when he asked the disciples to provide food for all these people. And consider the context again. The disciples had just come back from this missionary journey. They had just gone out and done all these amazing things, had provided on Jesus for their every need, and here they get into a situation, and Jesus says, what are we going to do? And they see the size of the crowd, and it blinds them to the power of God. And can I tell you, there have been so many times in my life where God has done something amazing in me. I've seen him provide in a miraculous way, or in someone I know, he's done something great in their life. And then I turn around, and the next day, the next week, or the next month, and I say, God, how are you going to fix this? Or God, what are you going to do in this situation? And I've forgotten his power. I've forgotten the potential he has to make things right. And, and so Jesus does this with the disciples, and they forget. Now, one of the things that we see in Mark's gospel is he doesn't always paint the disciples in a very flattering light, um, which, which I am thankful for because I miss things a lot and I am slow to understand a lot, and so I can relate to the disciples. So I think that is why uh, Mark emphasizes sometimes their slowness to understand or reiterates the fact that they didn't get it. Um, yet, Jesus is patient with them. In their continual failure, to grasp what he's trying to do, what he's trying to get them to understand, he's patient with them. Let's read on. Uh, verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. As, as if he didn't already know, he's testing them again. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Just, just consider for a second the scope of this miracle. Mark just tells us there's 5,000 men, and, and, and the word men there that he uses is not the word that we use for mankind or just people in general. It actually means men, and we see in some of the other Gospels that it, it actually tells us there were women and children there as well. Uh, we know there was at least a boy there because the food was provided by a boy who brought his lunch. John's Gospel tells us that they found a boy who had this food. So we know there were at least 5,000 people there. Now, 
I was trying to wrap my mind around just how many people that is. And um, so to help, maybe I, I took the kids, my, my uh, daughter and, and uh, my son, Hank, and we went to the uh, Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes game a few weeks ago, the, the mighty, mighty volcanoes. And uh, so uh, the stadium up there in Kaiser, we, we go, we enjoy the game, and I was, I was looking up afterwards, you know, kind of how many people that stadium seats. And it's about 4,200 people. Okay, so imagine Kaiser Stadium or whatever, Volcano Stadium filled to capacity, right, 4,200 people, and then double that. Right? You take two stadiums completely full of people, just visualize that in your mind. That's probably about the size of this crowd. Could have even been more. And, and so here's the scene. Jesus has all these people surrounding him, thousands and thousands of people. And, and the disciples say, what are you going to do? And Jesus says, what do you have? And so they bring him essentially a sack lunch. And, and they have to be laughing. I mean, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Um, because they'd forgotten who they're dealing with. They'd forgotten the power that resided in him. Um, and there have been people who have tried to discount this miracle. I mean, all the miracles, but there have been people who throughout history have struggled with um, the fact that this could have actually happened. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting, kind of comical reading some of the things that people have come up with. Um, but for example, so, so uh, there have been some that have taught that, that uh, well, Jesus didn't actually feed them physically. He taught them to love, and uh, so they had learned to love one another perfectly, and in that, they were satisfied. Now, when you read the word satisfied there, I don't know what you think of, but what I think of is a really good meal that I've just had, and I am sitting there, and all is well with the world. Try to remember back to the the last uh, really good meal you had where you were satisfied. Um, mine was a couple weeks ago, our kids were, our older kids were at a Bible camp in the morning and it was my day off. So Michelle and I had a little bit of time kind of to ourselves. We had our, our one-year-old with us, but, um, we said, Hey, let's go out for brunch. And uh, so we've lived in Salem about a year and a half now. And, uh, I'd been to word of mouth bistro once before, but Michelle had never been. And, and I said, Hey, let's go check out word of mouth. So we go, I don't know if you guys have been there or not, but we go to word of mouth. We wait the half hour, uh, however long it is to get in. And, uh, and, uh, if you've seen their menu, if you've been there, you know that they have this thing called a cinnamon roll pancake. I don't know if you've tried the cinnamon roll pancake, but um, let me, this is a public service announcement for you. If you go to a restaurant, I don't care if it's word of mouth anywhere, if you go to a restaurant and they have a cinnamon roll pancake on the menu, you order the cinnamon roll pancake. And um, I mean, it's, it's glor- like the size of my head. I mean, the thing is glorious. And I got about halfway through it and, and I was, I was tapped out. I was done. And I asked the waitress, I was like, Do, are there people who actually finish these? And she was like, every day. And, and I, I mean, I, I don't want to judge, but I'm just saying, like, gluttony is a sin. And um, I, I don't know. But I was satisfied when I had the cinnamon roll pancake. And in the same way, Mark tells us plainly that the people ate and they were satisfied. And, and consider this. In all four of Mark's Gospels, or all four of the Gospels that tell us this account, this miracle story, none of them actually tell us what it was that Jesus taught. It simply says that he taught them. I think in Luke it tells, them, it tells us that he taught them about the kingdom of heaven. But beyond that, we have no specifics of what Jesus actually taught them. So to say that, oh, Jesus taught them to love, and so that's what he's talking about when he says they were satisfied or they were filled. The point of the story is not Jesus' teaching here. We have plenty of 
examples of Jesus' teaching and the specifics of what he taught all through the rest of the Gospels. But in this story, the point of this story is the miracle. Mark and the other writers are trying to let us know this is what happened. It's not so much about what Jesus was trying to teach us, but it's what he did. It displays his power. It displays his glory. One of I just got to share with you, this is my favorite one. So another theory about what uh, might have happened here is um, Jesus knew what he was knew, knew ahead of time uh, what was going to happen. There was this crowd coming, and so he set the whole thing up. So there's a cave in the hillside. He stocks it with bread and with fish. And, and you know, in Bible times, they wore these cloaks, right, that had the big drapey sleeves. And, and so some, some people have said, well, the disciples, they formed an assembly line from the cave to Jesus, and they passed the food through their cloaks so that it looks as if Jesus is multiplying the food, but really he's just getting it from the disciples. And um, I'll let you do with that what you want. But we can take comfort in knowing that the word of God is true, and we can look at the gospel accounts of this particular story, and we can trust that God did what he said he did here. He multiplied the food, and it was enough. So it's a great miracle. There, there are a lot of things in this story that we love. You know, we tell it to our kids. Like I said, a lot of people have heard this miracle. But what is it that we can gain from this? I mean, on the, on the one hand, it's, it's a fantastic story. But what's the point? Why is it in our Bible? And as I said earlier, there are three main things that we, we look at when we look at a miracle that Jesus does. And the first thing is... Um, it, it authenticates who he is. And as we just looked at, we believe that it, the plain account of what happened here shows us that this was a miraculous event. This is not something that could have been done by any person. It had to have been done by God. So it authenticates who Jesus is for us. Secondly, it displays his nature, his character. It shows us some of that. Think about this for a second. The, the boy that brought his lunch, the, the bread and the fish to Jesus, do you think Jesus needed that? No, I, Jesus is God. Jesus is there at creation at the very beginning saying, let there be light, creating out of nothing. And so in this instance, did Jesus need that food in order to multiply it? No, but one of the things we see in God's nature is that he loves to take our offering. He loves to take what we have to bring, small, as insignificant as it may seem, and he multiplies it. He makes it sufficient. And so we see this in God. He delights in that, in, in bringing what we have to him. And then um, the third thing, though, and this is, is probably the most significant thing about the miracle, is it points ultimately to the reason he came. And the feeding of the 5,000, the, the multiplying of the bread and the loaves, ultimately points to the cross because it shows us that Jesus himself will be broken for us. And Jesus himself will become our greatest satisfaction. And, and the reason we understand this and we know this uh, is because the disciples were right there with Jesus. And sadly, they didn't get it. And so we're going to see what happens in this next passage, which we're going to read through really quick. Um, you would think that the disciples understood what happened, um, but let's see what happens. In verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side 
to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Real quick, what's happening there? John gives us a glimpse, uh, the Gospel of John, of what's happening there. It says that as the, as the miracle was taking place, the crowd, Jesus could sense that they were about to try to take him by force and set him up as king. Jesus knows this is about to happen, and he knows the disciples are susceptible to this, to be influenced by the crowd, and so he diffuses the situation. He gets them in the boat and sends them across the water, says, I'm going to meet you on the other side. Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, about three, four in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And catch this, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What's going on here? Um, on, on first read through, we just see this maybe as another miracle. Jesus did one great miracle, and then he follows it with another one. But Mark gives us some clues that he's doing something with the disciples here. He's being very intentional about what he's doing as he's walking them out to the water. And to understand a little bit, since we're not in that time and place in that context, and we don't have the understanding that the disciples would have had. Uh, Go back to Exodus. We see in Exodus 33, Moses has just led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he is with them. They're at Mount Sinai. God is giving them the Ten Commandments. He's giving them the law, and he's establishing his covenant with them. And Moses is on the mountain. And in chapter 3 of Exodus, we see Moses and God having a dialogue. And Moses says, God, unless your presence goes with us from here, we don't want to go. Don't send us. We want you, we have to have you go with us. And what Moses asks of God is that God would show him his glory. And God says, all right, I'll do it. But no one can see my face and live. And so here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. Turn your back, my glory. I will pass by. And then you can turn and you can see my back because no one can see my face and live. And so in uh, Exodus 34... We see this happen in, uh, starting in verse 4. And Moses rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the proper name of God, Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What is happening here, uh, Bible scholars have called this a theophany. It's a manifestation of God. He's displaying himself. He's displaying his glory to his people. And what we see when Jesus walks on the water to his disciples also is a theophany. And there are some clues that Mark gives us to show us what Jesus is doing here. If you look in verse 48, it says, He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Jesus isn't walking to them necessarily. He's intending to walk by them, to pass by them. The language there 
goes back to this idea in Exodus where we see God passing by Moses. And in, uh, in Job uh, chapter 9, verse 8, it says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. It would have been understood that anyone walking on water, the only one that could have actually done that would have been God. God is saying, I am God. Jesus is saying, I am God. Recognize me for who I am. And in case there was any question about what Mark is trying to communicate here, in, in verse 50, when Jesus says, sees the disciples, he says to them, take heart, it is I. That Greek phrase there, it is I, translates I am. I am. It's the phrase God uses to describe himself. It is his Name And so Jesus is communicating to the disciples as he walks out on the water that he is the very same God who appeared to Moses back in Exodus. The very same God who was able to multiply the bread, the fish, was the same God who created everything in the first place and holds all together. He's the fulfillment of what it says in Hebrews 1. Verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus was making it abundantly clear in that moment who he was to his disciples. He was showing them that he, the one who had just shown compassion to this crowd, was the same God in Exodus who it says is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He, Jesus, the same person who provided abundantly for this crowd when they had a need, is the same God in Exodus who maintains love to thousands, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And he, the one who appeared to the disciples on the water, terrifyingly in power, is the same God, the same Yahweh God, who brings justice, who in Exodus does not leave the guilty unpunished, yet in this moment says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus is intentional as he walks out to them and says, I know you just missed what happened, but don't you see now? It was never about the loaves. It was about me. It wasn't about what I could provide for you, but it's about my presence being with you. The things that I offer you are good, and they'll last for a moment, but what I offer you is life that lasts forever. Because ultimately, what Jesus did in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is it points to the cross. It foreshadows what he ultimately came to do. If there's any question um, that that's what that miracle is intended to show, we get it answered for us in John's gospel. And this is where we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up. But uh, John's gospel, like the others, tells the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 tells the story of Jesus walking on the water. And then we see something unique in John 6. Jesus then, the crowd again finds Jesus, and he teaches them, and he explains to them that he is the bread of life. In uh, John 6, verses 25, it says, When they found him, this is the crowd, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Ask yourself this today. Am I satisfied in Jesus? Is he my greatest satisfaction? Or do I find more satisfaction in the things that he provides, as the crowd did? Ask yourself this. Do I trust that God alone is sufficient? Or is my heart hardened by sin? And and am I placing trust in these idols that I've elevated above him, as the disciples did? Jesus died so that we may be fully satisfied in him, that he can be our greatest satisfaction. Do you know that satisfaction? Do you know him? John 6.35 says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Have you found that rest in his presence? Have you experienced that? Do you want to? Because he wants to offer it to you. When, when we look at this miracle, when we look at um, the power displayed on the hillside there and, and Jesus meeting the needs of the people in this way, we, we see, we quickly realize that, that our efforts to please God, that our attempts to um, find satisfaction and fulfillment are about as effective as, as trying to feed a couple minor league baseball stadiums full of people with a sack lunch, right? But maybe that's the point of the story because what Jesus does is he loves to take what we have to offer. As, as, as insignificant as it may seem to everyone else, if we bring him what I have, Jesus loves taking that and he himself is broken for us. And he takes a hard heart and he creates something new out of it. I'll close with this quote uh, from Bernard of Clairvaux. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead and thirst our souls from thee to fill. May that be our prayer uh, today. Let's pray. Jesus, may uh, you truly alone uh, be our greatest satisfaction. There are things that, that fight for our satisfaction. There are things that we are easily uh, invested in, in, in trying to find fulfillment. But as, as you showed us, just as you are sufficient for that large crowd to the point where they had their fill and there was abundance left over. God, you are sufficient for us. Your grace is deeper, is is wider. It goes beyond what we can comprehend. May we trust in that. May we come to you knowing that our efforts are going to fall short. Like those disciples who, who, who kept forgetting, who kept uh, not seeing clearly. Our hearts are oftentimes hard. But God, you You specialize in taking hard hearts 
softening them and making something new out of them. And so, God, we ask for that in each of us today. Do a work in our hearts. We can't do it ourselves, but transform us for your glory, for our good, and to see your kingdom spread to the world. In your name we pray, amen.